Well, we are going through a series at the moment uh, as we enter into the Easter period uh, during Lent. Uh, you've heard a bit of that mentioned already. It's a time when we intentionally draw near to God and we're actually going through, we're finishing the book of Matthew, going through the particular text in the lead up to Jesus' death and resurrection, which we celebrate at Easter. And today we get to uh, the rejection of Jesus. It's a, it's a it's got a heartbreaking moment in many ways as we consider it. I was just chatting to someone before the service actually about uh, a moment of rejection that I had. Um, I'd moved schools when I was um, uh, sort of between year eight and year nine and I started a new school and I found it really hard to make friends. I was in a new city. We'd moved states. People didn't like Victorians apparently. I'm a Victorian. Nice to meet you. And um, Yes, and it just, it, it took me a little while to, um, to meet friends and get to know people. And I did feel a sense of rejection. Now, and, uh, you know, from time to time we get an experience of rejection. Maybe if we're, you know, trying to date someone. We just had a series on biblical relationships. And you know what it's like when you try and date someone or you're interested in them, you like them, and maybe they don't quite like you. And so you might feel a sense of rejection. But as, as the closeness of the relationship increases, so does the problem and the consequences when there is rejection. So, for example, let's say you are dating and then uh, one party to, or you both decide to break up. Well, you really feel that, don't you? You feel that more uh, than if you just liked them but they didn't like you. And what about if you get engaged? Well, you feel it even more, don't you? And if you're married... And you've made a lifelong monogamous commitment before God to one another, to the exclusion of all others, and they reject you. Well, then you really, really feel it, don't you? And there's consequences, not just for you, but for your family and all of those around you as well. And here uh, in our text, we see a case of rejecting Jesus. We see a case of those who don't really know who Jesus is, but they should. That's the, you know, the, the leaders um, of uh, the Jewish faith, the chief priests and, and their group around them, Caiaphas and the group around them. They reject Jesus, though they shouldn't. And there's quite serious consequences to their rejection of Jesus. But we even see one of those that know Jesus really well, Peter. Even he rejects Jesus, doesn't he? And so on the one hand, you've got those uh, who don't know Jesus, but they really should, rejecting him. And you've got those who know Jesus, also rejecting him. So we're going to look at re what it means to reject Jesus. We've got um, so four ways to look at it this morning. The first is um, judgment, that is, uh, our judgment of Jesus, how we might judge Jesus. And we'll have a look at that in a moment. Secondly, we're going to look at denial. What it means to deny Jesus as a way of rejecting him, and that's particularly for those who know him. Uh, thirdly, we'll actually follow Peter's path a little bit. It says he, he went out and whipped, uh, wept, didn't whip, he wept bitterly. And so we'll follow him and what it means that we would weep over our rejection of God and what that means. And finally, well, we can't end on weeping, can we? We'll finish with joy. So judgment, denial, weeping, joy. Firstly, judgment. Now, in your text, uh, Jesus is so taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. We, we, we looked at that last week. He's taken out of it. He, he's arrested, effectively, 
uh, by an armed mob with clubs and swords, and he's taken to a religious court. Now, they're not really acting as they should, the religious court. They're not supposed to function in this way. They sort of assume he's guilty from the beginning. They don't call any witnesses on his behalf. They're actually breaking their own laws in the way that they're treating Jesus. So it's really a a farce. It's a kangaroo court, uh, what is going on before Jesus. And you see, even at the beginning, it says they try and call witnesses. And it's dark, but they try and call people up in the middle of the night and get them to come in, false witnesses, to accuse Jesus of doing wrong. And you know what? They can't get any. They can't get any false witnesses. But this is a very interesting point, I think, for us. Because often, uh, and this is particularly for those that don't know Jesus, we accept false arguments about him all the time. We accept false arguments about Jesus. We listen to false witnesses. We look for those who would make arguments against the knowledge of God. And we accept them. We might even accept them without even thinking about them. Now, the Bible explains, uh, I think, really quite well that God is the creator. And it's pretty obvious that he's the creator. It's pretty obvious that he's the creator because of the complexity of the world. You know, sometimes we are in awe, you know, a beautiful sunset. Or some people like the dawn if you're a morning person. You know, we're in a moment when we're in a, which I was a a couple of weeks ago when I was out camping away from the city, looking up at a giant starry night and thinking how infinitely small we are and infinitely big it is. And I could not but help wonder at the goodness and glory of God. So the created world around us and really the high point of creation is actually humanity and the complexity and beauty of people. This should point us to the reality of a God. And yet for many people, maybe perhaps even us, we dismiss that. We dismiss, well, perhaps he, you know, there's other ways to explain things. Even though we really see no evidence in the universe of anything so complex happening without it being created. No, like, for example, we keep inventing more and more advanced technology, like a computer, for example. And you know, computers used to be the size of this room, and now they're kind of the You can fit them in your pocket, can't you? They've got about the same power, don't they? And something that complex just doesn't come about by its own, does it? You need a team of sort of, you know, like scientists to develop the technology and engineers to put it together, you know, and all these other software developers and everyone else to combine to make this incredible instrument. It doesn't just appear on its own, does it? And likewise, humanity and the world around us didn't just appear on its own. It needs an intelligent creator. Someone who made it. Someone who sits behind the scenes and yet desires to be intricately involved in our lives. And so we often dismiss, I think particularly, the argument for a creator when we don't really think about it that much. So just like um, they were seeking false witnesses uh, about Jesus and this council, we often, in our own hearts, don't think about God rightly either. And we accept often false witnesses about him. But, so we make a judgment, almost, on who God is or who He could be. This goes a little bit deeper, though. So you'll find uh, that they actually did find two people to come forward, and that is following uh, the Jewish law, kind of. They're not doing a very good job so far, but they're kind of following the Jewish law, They having at least two witnesses to claim that Jesus did something wrong. 
Uh, so we see this uh, in verse 61. They said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Jesus said this. We know that Jesus said this in actually John chapter 2. Jesus, you know, uh, did say that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it within three days. And John's gospel actually gives us a bit of a commentary on that, saying that uh, actually Jesus was talking about his body itself, that they might destroy his body and yet three days later he would rise. Actually, that's a bigger miracle than destroying a physical, you know, just a building and they're rebuilding it in three days. It's a bigger miracle that Jesus would die and then on the third day rise from the dead. And yet they are calling him out and saying, you know, this is wrong. You shouldn't have said that. So they are effectively dismissing Jesus' word. Now, this is really dangerous because, well, they actually don't know whether he can do that or not, do they? They haven't really put Jesus to the test. They're going to find out that Jesus can actually fulfill his word. Now, if we just turn the mirror back on ourselves for a minute, this is something that we can do all the time. We can dismiss God's word, particularly when it doesn't fit with the way that we think things should be. You know, we accept parts of the Bible. I was chatting to someone uh, just this week. They said they're a New Testament Christian. Not an Old Testament Christian, a New Testament Christian. Mainly because they didn't really like what they read in the Old Testament. And so just sort of cut, you know, carving out you know, two-thirds of the Bible effectively, and saying, well, I don't like that God, but I kind of like the New Testament. I was, I was actually thinking, um, they probably haven't read much of the New Testament because the, the God in the, in the New Testament is the same God in the Old Testament. Actually, they agree with one another if you read it carefully. But there is something in our hearts that you know, when we don't like parts of God's Word, we tend to dismiss it outright. Now, the reason I say this is dangerous Because what if it's true? And moreover, if it is true, then the stakes are really high. Uh, I might have mentioned this before, but I remember a pastor was once uh, in a sermon talking about when people uh, ask him uh, on the issue of homosexuality. He said often people um, approach Christianity, uh, even if they are same-sex attracted or sort of have um, struggles with uh, that issue in various forms, and they don't really want to buy into Christianity because of the way that it handles sexuality. It's very prudish. It's very conservative. Christianity is very conservative with the way that it handles human sexuality. And the, the pastor was actually saying, well, you know, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And that sort of gets to the heart of, well, who is God and is, is the Bible true? And if the person can answer, well, yes, Jesus rose from the dead, well, then Actually, the issue about sexuality and how conservative the Bible is on that issue is really a non-issue. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, literally defeating death, then sexuality is a really small issue by comparison because Jesus is Lord and King of all. So if the Bible's true, the stakes are really high, and yet here... In this kangaroo court, they dismiss Jesus' word outright. So on the one hand, uh, you, know, you buy into false arguments. And you might dismiss the word of God. But then here, it goes much deeper. They condemn Jesus to death when he talks about 
who he really is. They humiliate him. You know, prophesy to us, you Christ. They spit in his face. They strike him. It's as if they wish that he was dead already. Now, again, when we judge God in such a way that we accept false arguments about him and we dismiss the authority of the Bible, though we probably haven't tested it that well, we're effectively saying to the person of God, we wish you were dead. Because that's what happened here. And the tragedy of it all is that these people are the, the very people that should love Jesus. They're the leaders of the nation of Israel. Jesus is the God of Israel. Become a man. He is their Christ. And yet they mock him. They humiliate him. They strike him and they condemn him to death in their kangaroo court. Think about it. Just as on a person-to-person level, if someone dismisses what you say, they don't believe what you say is true, they ignore you and, and who you say about yourself, they're really saying you're a non-person. I don't care if you're alive or dead. If this happened, uh, when human beings do this to other human beings and they dismiss them as a non-person, when, when they reduce their dignity to zero, we do terrible things to other people. And we see it here, what they're willing to do to the Son of God. So it's very easy to make a judgment upon Jesus. It's very easy to do. It's kind of going with the flow of our current culture. But be warned. Be warned. When you reject Jesus by judging him, there are serious, very serious consequences. Now, a lot of people tend to think about God in a bit of a, um, you know, he's out there somewhere kind of way. I've been reading a uh, fantasy series called The Wheel of Time. It's just come out, um, I think, on one of the, uh, um, sort of like a, in a TV series. And one of the things I noticed about uh, reading through this series is um, there's these great themes of light and dark. And I, and I keep reading, and you know, they're almost biblical, the themes in this book. And I'm like, this guy's got to be a Christian. Anyway, start reading the book, and yes, he, he is a Christian. But it's, it's sort of vague and in the background. The way that um, the you know, God-like uh, creatures in the background, he's almost like a force, but he's someone that you don't really know personally. You can't get too close to him, and he's a bit of a mystery. At least where I'm at, I'm in book two, and there's 14, so I'll maybe get to the end and you'll finally discover who this is. But so, so this is, on the one hand, a lot of people tend to think about God in that way. He's a force, he's someone in the background, he's someone that we could believe in, and maybe if we be a good person, go to church every now and then, uh, you know, don't hurt anyone, then we'll be in his good books at the end. That's the hope, Right? So, so that's a view. There's another um, fantasy writer. His name is C.S. Lewis. He, he wrote a uh, book series called The Chronicles of Narnia, which I love. They're a bit kidsy. Uh, they're very simple. But the God figure in them is very prominent. Now, C.S. Lewis is, yeah, for sure a Christian. But there's a quite a difference in the way that he uh, portrays the God figure in them, which is sort of Aslan, the, the son of the, uh, the, the great sort of... 
uh, God across the sea. Aslan is a lion uh, that keeps appearing in the different stories. But it seems as though, uh, in contrast to the Robert Jordan Wheel of Time books, the C.S. Lewis's Aslan is not disinterested and sort of far off and vague and a mystery and someone you can't really know and sort of just a force of light and goodness out there in the world that maybe you could do a few good works in to believe in. No. This lion comes upon you. He seems to appear out of nowhere. He seems to interrupt the storyline. He seems to invade people's lives and come upon them with a right or wrong, a yes or no. Are you in or are you out? Are you on his side or are you not? And this lion, they, they talk about him, they say he's not a tame lion. He's sort of fearsome and he growls and can destroy people. And he's also warm and tender at the same time. He welcomes the little children to him, but he will not permit evil. And what C.S. Lewis picked up, picks up on very well is that the God in the Bible is not a distant God that we can just judge from our seat of authority. The God in the Bible is someone who really did invade earth in a way. Right? God became a man. He really does come into our lives. It's almost, and if you've become a Christian, if you become a Christian, you will know this for yourself. It's not really that you discovered who God is with all your might. It's really that one day he came upon you and you changed. You came out of darkness into light. The Bible describes it as being born again. You can't do it yourself. You become a new creation. If you're a Christian, it's like he's invaded your life and done a great work of transformation for you. And so beware, do not judge him. Judgment is a way of rejecting Jesus. Denial is also, secondly, a way of rejecting Jesus. And this is really for those who know him. And we see what we see in the text, and this is when we, it, it sort of moves on to Peter, it's sort of got a, a progressive denial. There's a threefold denial that gets worse and worse that Peter has of Jesus. Now, this is the same Peter whom Jesus said to, uh, you know, I will build my church upon this rock. And Peter's name, Petros, means rock. So Jesus said, I'm going to use you. And Peter said, I'll never deny you, just early in the chapter, actually. And yet here, he's willing to deny Jesus to his utmost. Uh, we see it in, I said, three ways. Firstly, in verse 70, we see Peter falsifying a misunderstanding. Peter's under pressure. He knows, he's been listening in on what's been going on. He knows they want to kill Jesus and they're probably going to. Jesus has been telling him for a while now and the disciples that he's going to die. And so Peter's afraid. He feels like his own life is on the line and yet he falsifies a misunderstanding. This is what it says in verse 69. It says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. He falsified a misunderstanding. Now I think, again, this is a very common thing that we might do in regards to the Word of God or the Bible. 
When there's something we read in the Bible that we don't like, even though it's pretty clear, we might go, oh, it's a bit of a mystery. We don't really know. That might be our default position. We falsify a misunderstanding. Now, this might be that, um, you know, the Bible says that Christians shouldn't date non-Christians or marry non-Christians. And you might go, well, it's a bit of a mystery because you've fallen in love with someone who doesn't hold the same faith as you, but you really like them. And so you're willing to say, well, actually, oh, that part of the Bible is really a mystery. Or let's say you're at work and the issue of you know, the created world comes up and someone comes up and says, do you think God really made the world by speaking? And you're like, oh, it's, a, it's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Even though it kind of says that God spoke and the world came about in the beginning of Genesis, doesn't it? Falsifying a misunderstanding about God's word is a way of denying Jesus. That's what Peter does. I do not know what you mean. And yet he did know what they meant. Of course he did. This is the first step in denying Jesus. This is an easy step to make. Is this a step that we've taken recently? Is this a step that you're taking at the moment in your life? So first, the second uh, step of denial is disassociating ourselves of him. We see this uh, in verses 71 and 72. It says, And then he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 72. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So he's falsified a misunderstanding, because I don't know what you're talking about. But now he's disassociating himself with Jesus. I do not know the man. How striking is this? This is when, and there's subtle ways and obvious ways of this for those who believe in God. The obvious way is someone says you're a Christian, and you're like, no. That's the obvious way, isn't it? You just deny it outright. The subtle way is avoiding it. You know, if, if, if you, which most of us do, we, we are in a workplace, often a family where there's lots of people who don't uh, believe in, in Jesus. And when they ask you what, what you do on the weekend, you mention everything but going to church. Oh, I had a great night on Saturday night, went out and yeah, spent some time with the family on Sunday. And you intentionally miss it out because you're afraid of what they'll think of you when you tell them. Now, that's kind of a, you know, a pretty common one. What about when uh, Christians are on the nose in the news, which actually happens all the time, doesn't it? Seems like another week goes past, there's another scandal with some uh, Christian pastor who's been up to no good. Or something in you know the, the public versus the church, you know the public perception versus the church. Every week it seems to come up, and it comes up in conversation. And will you be willing to stand out from the crowd that people that know that you're a Christian, or do they just assume you're just the same as everyone else? It is a subtle disassociation with Jesus. Now, you might say, well, I'm not like them, no, the, the bad pastors who do this stuff. But you might say, well, I am a Christian. But when you avoid associating yourself with Christ altogether, 
It is a form of denial. It is a second step. It actually takes us quite close to rejecting Christ entirely. Think about it. If you're willing to pick and choose parts of the Bible you like and you don't like, if you're willing to you know, not stand out from the crowd for being a Christian, Jesus said some pretty strong words about this, didn't he? He said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you. So really the question of denial is a strong one. It's a scary one. So falsifying a misunderstanding is denial. Disassociating ourselves of him is a denial. The third is self-condemning behavior and words when pressed. I want you to see this, um, verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. There's a lot of pressure on Peter. He feels like he's being caught out. He fears that his life is on the line. And he's ready to abandon knowing Jesus altogether. He capitulates to the pressure. When does this happen? Well, if if you're a, um, a Christian person, it's when you solidly identify against Jesus. It's when you say, I bind myself to preferring other things rather than God himself. It might be getting married to someone that you really shouldn't, you know, breaking that uh, sort of rule or principle, uh, if you're a Christian, of not marrying a non-Christian. It might be uh, in your own life when you say, well, I'm not going to believe in Christian ethics on this issue anymore, and I'm going to tell people I don't. You're actually choosing to publicly commit yourself against God. This is when you're actually going all out in your rejection of him. It's in this case when we, just as Peter did, he invokes a curse on himself. It's as if we were to say, I don't know Christ, I'm telling the truth, and so therefore I curse myself if I really know him. You'll do whatever it takes not to be caught out, that you would be seen as a Christian. Now, uh, interestingly, uh, I went through this three-stage denial when I was a young person. I remember uh, when I was about 11 years old and I didn't really, I mean, I believed in the Bible and Jesus and stuff, but it wasn't cool. And to be honest, I really was more interested in what my friends thought of me at school. So the peer pressure, really we all feel that a little bit, a bit of social pressure from time to time. And so I avoided the subject. I didn't tell anyone I was a Christian. I didn't really behave like a Christian either, so they wouldn't have known either way. Still went to church though, but that was kind of the last domino to fall of my rejection and denial of Jesus. And so I remember, I remember it quite clearly when the last domino fell. I was on the way to church with my parents. 
And on a Sunday, I knew that my friends from school would not go to church, but they just, you know, we lived in a small country town in Victoria. They'd go and have fun all day on a Sunday. And I really wanted to do that. I wanted to be with them, not with my parents going to church. And so I, but, and I was driving to church and I saw my friends walking literally out the front of the church. And I, this was like the most embarrassing moment of my life to that point, I thought. That they would, they'd find out. And so I remember like, like sinking back into the car, hoping that no one would see me. And of course, my parents were like, Lawson, Lawson, come out of the car. And my friends are like, Lawson. Oh yeah, I was embarrassed. And I was actually ashamed, like Peter. I sort of cursed myself that I was stuck in this shameful moment to be associated with God. And I swore never again to go to church. I told my parents, I'm, I'm done. I would not be a part of that shame again. So it does happen, doesn't it? It does happen that we get consumed by denying God. And, and it is like a domino. If you start to deny him in small ways, it will catch up with you and you will start to deny him in big ways. So there's rejecting, rejecting Jesus comes with judgment. For those that know him, it comes with denial. And it sort of finishes with weeping, doesn't it? Verse 75. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This was Peter's watershed moment. He'd rejected Jesus and he knew it. What sort of tears did he have? He had tears of shame. Realising what he had done to the one whom he loved. Oddly though, this was a glimmer of hope. There was a glimmer of hope in this for Peter. You know, one of the Gospels actually says that Jesus looks at Peter the moment the rooster crowed. And then he went out and wept. Jesus knew it instantly. Not only did Jesus know it at the time, even though Jesus wouldn't have been within earshot, but Jesus knew it beforehand. Jesus said to Peter, hey, look, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So there is this glimmer of hope in this moment, even though Peter has this realisation, what has he done? Jesus is totally aware of his situation. Now, this really begs the question, how can Peter recover from this point? I mean, to go so high, that is to be so close to Jesus and fall so low to make an almost absolute rejection of him. How can you recover at this point? Did you know that Peter's um, name is actually not mentioned in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew? It doesn't get a mention anymore. It's sort of written out of the book after this moment. This is it. This is to be our last moment of meeting Peter uh, through the book of Matthew, even though he's been very prominent. He doesn't disappear, though. Something happens to Peter, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But for a moment, I just want you to dwell on the fact that Peter had this realisation of what he had done. Now, this can have a glimmer of hope to it. 
Because it often is in our lives when we've really messed up and we know it, that we get to the bottom of our lives we turn to God and say, God, I've got nothing to offer you. I've broken every promise that I've made. I'm not really a good person after all because you've realized that you're not. I don't have a list of good things that will outweigh the bad things in my life to hand to you. I have nothing. How can that be a hopeful place? How can that be a hopeful place? Because that is the very heart of Christianity. Is that we really have nothing to offer God because as Peter rejected Jesus, so have we all. The Bible is really clear on this. For all have fallen short of glory of God and sinned against Him. No one is good, no, not one says the book of Romans, quoting the Psalms. We've all got a darkness in our heart that if it's really put before a holy God, we are unworthy. You know, uh, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, the, the, the mighty prophet Isaiah, you know, he, he must have been a pretty seriously you know, good speaker, uh, a bit of a mighty man, and yet, when God appears before him in all his glory, Isaiah cowers. He can't even look up. All he really can see is the train of God's robe in this vision. And he says, Woe is me, and un- a man of unclean lips, amongst the people of unclean lips. And that is, when you really come before God, truly, and who he is, we don't stack up. And for Peter, it came when he denied Jesus. The glimmer of hope is that he's finally realized that he's got nothing to offer Jesus and all he can ask is that Jesus would have mercy on him. So that's the first type of weeping uh, that we see in our text. There is another type of weeping and it is a weeping of self-pity. Peter could have been crying like this, but I don't think he was, and yet sometimes we do. This is when, you know, we might reject God in various ways, and the consequences of our sin against God catch up with us. So we know we've done wrong, and we beat ourselves up for our bad deeds. I'm a bad person. I've done bad things in my life. But we're really just feeling bad because we've been caught. We're really just feeling bad because there's negative consequences in our lives for the things that we've done or the things that have been done against us. In this case, weeping in self-pity is actually a form of pride. We think, if I beat myself down enough, maybe God will accept me. If I beat myself down for the things that I've done enough, then maybe other people will say, hey, there's a really humble person. You know, maybe God would accept him on the basis of his humility. But really, it's a false humility. It's a pride. When we're just sad because life's caught up with us, 
or we've got a bad lot in life, and really it's got nothing to do with God at all, and we're still trying to earn His favor by our good works, we're really saying, I really still want to depend on myself, not look to Jesus. The third type of weeping, and this is the worst one, is weeping in darkness. This is also a realization of what you've done, what you've done to Jesus, but it's one that the Bible says happens at the end, at judgment. It talks about uh, the place of darkness, that is hell, as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a terrible place. It's a place of realization, but it's a place where we might have stayed in that well of self-pity but never turned to Jesus. It's a place where we might have stayed in our judgment upon God and never turned to Jesus. This weeping in utter darkness is a terrible place to be in. And the, the fascinating and scary thing that the Bible says is that this can happen to religious and non-religious people. Jesus says the sons of the king, this is in Matthew 8, the sons of the kingdom are thrown into outer darkness while others come in. Why? Because they still think that their lives are good enough for God to accept them. They don't re- they're not really coming before a holy God and realizing they've got nothing to offer him. There, there is a type of tears at the end, which is a place none of us want to be in. The good news, of course, is that if you're hearing this, you're not there yet. You're not in that place of outer darkness and of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so there still is time to sort out your relationship with God now. Peter was at the precipice, the watershed moment, weeping bitterly outside after he denied Jesus. What would happen? What sort of tears would he have now and forever? What sort of tears would he have? Would they be tears that turn to joy? Which brings us to our last and final point, joy. How can you go from tears to joy, by the way? So I've made a bit of a shift, haven't I? It doesn't actually have much joy in the text for us today, but I couldn't finish there. I couldn't leave you on that. Psalm 126, it's an amazing psalm. It's a short psalm, but it has this same turn of weeping turning into joy. This, this turn that happens as you come before God, He does something to you. He invades into your life like the, the great lion of Narnia. He comes in and He changes things even when you're at the very bottom. And it comes like this. You see, if Peter was just looking at his own life and what he could do to earn God's favor, he was done. His weeping was a weeping of shame that would lead to outer darkness. But if Peter was looking to Jesus and to what Jesus could do for him, then there's hope. Why? What was Jesus doing? Jesus was allowing himself to be falsely accused, to be condemned by this kangaroo court. Why? Because he was dying for the sins of Peter. 
So if we look to what we can do, even in our moment of utter betrayal of God, of utter rejection of Him, even when we deny Him, if we look to what we can do to fix our lives, it won't stack up. But if we, like Peter came to, look to Jesus, it changes everything. This reflects well, I think, one of the uh, sort of two tenets of the, um, the Reformation, the Christian Reformation that happened in uh, the 16th century. One of the things that sort of went wrong with the, the church uh, up until that point was that um, it was put forward that you had to earn your way uh, to being a good person, to be accepted by God. You're pretty much born into Christianity or you got converted in, unlikely, but it did happen up until that point in the sort of 15th century and before. But to stay in God's favour, you had to do good things. And when you did bad things, you had to sort of earn back God's favour from you. And one of the reasons that the Protestant Reformation came about, that is people rejected those teachings, because the Bible doesn't teach it. The Bible teaches actually that God's standards are so high and we should aim to live rightly in light of them, but we don't. We need something else. We need a watershed moment. We need a moment of transformation to happen in our lives. And we need to come from God himself. And so two of the tenets they took up was Christ alone and faith alone. Christ alone meaning that only Jesus can do it. You can't do it by yourself. Only Jesus can do it. And faith alone, it's not by us doing anything, it's by entrusting ourselves to Him. Peter's not mentioned in the rest of the book of Matthew, but gee, he makes an appearance in the book of Acts, doesn't he? Something happened to Peter. Jesus forgave his sins and paid for them on the cross. And so likewise for you and me, what will turn our tears into joy, what will move our lives out of the subtle and the obvious rejections of Jesus that we have, is by not leaning on ourselves whatsoever. Even in our hearts, even now, letting ourselves be taken to a place where we realize we have nothing to offer God, aloneness, not for loneness sake, but that we might know that it is by His grace alone, through faith alone, that Christ alone would save us. And so Peter's Bitter tears would turn into shouts of joy, as Psalm 126 says. Because Peter was able to get up and preach about a Christ crucified for him in Acts chapter 2. For him. And so if you are going to be a person, and if I'm going to be a person who can boldly not reject Christ in subtle and obvious ways, You are going to have to be a person who can say that Christ died for me. You've had a personal revelation that he has done it for you. Only then will you know that though you may have denied and rejected him, he has accepted you, not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what he has done for you. Let us finish there. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for what you've done for us. I want to thank you. Lord, that though we have nothing to offer like Peter has nothing to offer, 
You offered yourself for us on the cross. You became the offering that would bring us life. We praise you for that. We pray you change us because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.